All right. Well, um, it's a it's a special time of year. Uh, it's good to see everybody who's here. December twenty sixth through the thirty first is kind of the appendix of the calendar. It's just sort of there. Um, between more important things, uh, and it's easy to forget about unless something is going wrong with it. Uh, in the Christian religion's experience, this 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 time frame after Christmas, before New Year's, it's it's at best it's a denouement, a sliding down from a previous height. Uh, all December, it's been Advent season for us, the coming of Christ, getting ready, the King is crum- coming, make straight the ways of the Lord, and all that. And then big explosions, Christmas proper, top billing, center stage, seating, the King is here, joy to the world, and then. We might even go to church twice that week. We're feeling so spiritually jazzed. Um, Christmas has come. Christmas has gone. Christmas will come again. And and but afterward, you just sleep off the sugar coma and wait till you feel human again. And then it's the Sunday after Christmas. Somewhat less exciting. Um, everyone who came here today is, is de facto now a super Christian. Because a lot of the people who made it to church twice last week are, you know, doing the thinking this morning. Well, I mean, Bible law says you only have to go once a week. I went twice last week, so, you know. So everyone who's here is de facto a, a hero of the faith. Because um, it's still December. But it's after Christmas. Like, is it still Advent? Is it that season anymore? Uh, Is it the next one, the only one you know about if you spent some time Catholic? Um, We're still super excited that Jesus was born. But Christmas has just happened. It's done. Now what? Where do we stand? And so we stand now sort of in the the after effect of Christmas, the fallout of Christmas. Um, The afterglow is fading, but the extra garbage is still there in the cans, taking up space. And this time is significant. It's it's meaningful because the reality is, whether it's December 24th or 26th or today, 29th, any day really, it's post-Christmas. Like a birthday, what you celebrate isn't the actual birthday year by year. It's the anniversary remembrance of the actual literal day of birth. My, my oldest daughter is not about to celebrate her birthday. She's about to celebrate the anniversary of her birthday. Celebrations to, the remember, to remember the birth of Jesus come and go every year, but for the past two millennia, give or take, humanity has occupied a post-Christmas world. And this week, especially in the immediate aftermath of our anniversary celebration of that event, that the king had come, that God become man, God with us had been born, it's helpful to pause here at this particular time, in this particular moment, and ask ourselves, okay, what happens next? What do we do in the fallout of Christmas? What is different this week in a world where this has happened? And so that's what we're going to try and spend some time looking at today. Uh, Last week we looked at Matthew 1, the king is here, so this week we're just going to keep it simple and go to Matthew 2 and and look at what follows that. And we'll look at verses 1 through 16 together. And uh, we'll see what followed the birth of the Savior, and perhaps in so doing we might come to better understand where we ourselves stand, men and women living in a world where we must respond one way or another to what God has done on Christmas. So, so let's do that together. I'm going to pull up Matthew 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. 
Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this this sacred time we have together today. Uh, may we speak rightly, may we hear rightly, may we, may we see you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, perhaps a rather familiar story, likely not the first time we've heard this, and as, as we go through it together today, I, I want to direct our efforts a little bit um, by filtering what we've seen through three general categories. In part, that's just because it's preacher law, you need three things, and not only do I have three things, I found a mostly reasonable way to make them all start with the same letter, to be alliterative, and that's very important in preaching. It's, it's how we keep score amidst one another. Um, so I'm up one, and everyone else is going to have to deal with it. <laughs> uh, so, so what are we going to look at? I want to look at the story, and I want to look at the conflict in the story, the contrast in the story, and last and most importantly, I want us to look at Christ. Uh, so the conflict in the story, and then the contrast between the two kings we're presented with in this story, and then finally at Jesus, specifically as the Christ, as God's anointed one, Messiah, the Savior. So let's do that. We'll look at conflict, contrast, in Christ, and see if we can both, as we do that, just a, come to a better understanding of this story that we've received, uh, which being beloved perhaps is overly familiar and thus maybe fuzzily examined at times, uh, and then also just as a guide for how we 
perhaps ought to walk in this world where one night, long ago now, but at a real time, in a real place, on a real day in the real world, God drew the air of this world into his newly born body. So what is to be done with that? First, uh, this story, like any story, like any good story, centers around a conflict. We're presented with a scenario and some relevant parties. A baby has been born and he's called Jesus, and the list of people on earth who know that this is important is relatively small at this point. Uh, we've got parents, some nearby relatives, some, a couple of older folks at the temple, and then the shepherds, plus whoever the shepherds told, because that's just shepherds for you. Um, but for that moment, the world seems to just be sort of spinning along business as usual. Caesar Augustus is in Rome. He's sitting on the throne of the civilized world. And over in Jerusalem, Herod the Great, king of the Jews, is sitting on that throne, and which Rome gave to him. And the poor staying poor is no doubt nature and certainly the state intended, and all was right with the world. And then our story. Some guys show up in Jerusalem, not kings, Possibly three of them, we can't really say. We know it was more than one and probably less than five million, just because if it had been, Matthew would have been like, guys, there were five million of them. So that's our range, two to five million. Um, and we'll talk more about them later, who they were, uh, what that might mean. But this group of foreigners, wise men, magi, probably with a retinue of some kind, likely with large and impressive hats, arrive from far away, come to Jerusalem, enter the palace, come before Herod on his throne, look around and ask, so where's the king of the Jews who's been born? So that's our conflict. It's not a particularly subtle one, either. Uh, if there's more than one king, then either one of you is the king of somewhere else, or one of you isn't really king. In fact, really, when you break it down, the thing that's great about being the king is that when you are the king, it de facto means that other people aren't. Uh, it's an elevation. It is a separation. I, I honestly suspect that a vast number of wars throughout history, uh, mountains, oceans of bloodshed, have really just been shed in part because someone somewhere was just unable to accept the idea that someone somewhere was in charge of something that he wasn't. In fact, uh, it's, it's somewhat fundamental to the concept of kingship, at least how it's expressed in our hearts and, and throughout large parts of history, that if you're the king, it means you're the guy at the top. If someone can tell you no, then are you really the king? So that's conflict. There's only one king. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And what, one, verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Will you think? <laughs> and, and there's some potential political implications to all that as well, at least, or it could be seen that way by someone who only thinks in those terms. Uh, the wise men were from the east. East of Roman control, you really had two things, the, the buffer state of Parthia and the Persian Empire, which is likely where our Magi were from. And so you had these foreigners, these potential agents of the foreign power, which was opposed to your own imperial power that supported you, coming into your kingdom and saying, hey, where's your replacement? We would like to support him. Uh, so it's a, it's a great way to be nervous. So Herod's very pro-Rome. They gave him the big chair and the shiny metal hat. And so how awkward is it? How potentially destabilizing is it 
to, at this time of heightened messianic expectation in the first century, to have these foreigners, these potential enemies of the government he serves, poking around looking for the king of Jews that will what? Overthrow Rome? That's what everybody in Judea who didn't have a big chair and a shiny metal hat was hoping would happen. Um, so this, this threatens Herod personally and immediately. Conflict. There's only one king. And also, what a great way to get Rome's attention in a less than positive way. Herod was troubled. And here's what's interesting. They, the, Matthew adds, and all Jerusalem with him. That is interesting. And that's possibly because of all that political stuff we just talked about, but also possibly because all Jerusalem knew what sorts of things Herod did when he felt threatened. Herod was king of the Jews, and a lot of people had died to keep it that way. Uh, in that sense, all Jerusalem was right to be troubled. And, and here's where the conflict deepens, because Herod knows what they're talking about. When they come and say, we're here looking for the king of the Jews, we've come to worship him, he doesn't explain that they're confused, he's the king, he was born some time ago. It's not a misunderstanding. Instead, he summons all the chief priests and all the scribes, the megachurch pastors and the seminary professors, and he asks them, where is the Christ supposed to be born? He knows. He, he may not believe it himself. He might think it's just more manipulative, maneuvering, using religion of the sort he himself would shamelessly engage in his whole life. But he knows what's being invoked here. This isn't a line of succession issue or even a primarily geopolitical one. This is a group of people come to Jerusalem saying the Messiah, God's promise to Israel answered, has been born. Where is he? We've come to worship him. With, with the full weight of the hope of the Old Testament, they come and ask, where is he? And Herod knows who it is they're talking about. But there's only one king in the human heart, isn't there? And this, this newborn Jesus is a king. Matthew takes great pains to make that clear throughout his gospel. From the genealogy we read together last week, by birth, he's a king. And then the Magi come to adore and worship him, to acknowledge him as a king. And Herod's response in all this, his fear, his evil, uh, in their own twisted way, actually do much the same. Implicitly, he acknowledges Jesus as king, as a rival king, by his rejection and fear. So the, the answer comes to Herod via the priests and scribes. It's in the Bible. They, they, they read Micah 5, which we did earlier together today. Uh, the Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed one who will save his people, will be born in Bethlehem. And then verse 7, afterward and secretly, Herod pulls the Magi aside, a private meeting. And what he really wants to know is who he has to kill to make this go away. Well, what age and down? But he didn't get the big chair by being forthright, honest, and direct. So instead he asked them, what time did the star appear? How long ago was that? Interesting. Wow. Well, hey, go find him. Let me know, and I will come and worship him too. We already know what he's planning, of course, because of the conflict. There's only one king. And again, even if Herod didn't believe a thing that scripture said, didn't believe that the child the Magi spoke of would embody and embrace that full messianic program that scripture advertised, 
even setting all that history and witness of scripture about who this child was and would be and would do, at this point, even if you don't buy any of that, the kid's a baby. He's done nothing good. He's done nothing bad. He hasn't embraced or rejected any particular policy or platform, but he was a king. And to the kings of this world and the would-be kings of this world, there's nothing more offensive because it didn't matter what his program was or would be. It was enough to know that it wasn't my program. So we'll actually look at a little bit at that. What, what was the advertised by Scripture messianic program? Because there was one advertised throughout the Scriptures. We've spoken of it really at some length in the preceding weeks of this Advent series. The coming king prophesied, the question asked, what kind of king will he be, and so on. And, and so that, that question of, of who he will be is really what brings us to that second point, that point of contrast. Because this story gives us two kings, two kings of the Jews even. And there's a pretty startling contrast between them. Now this is all over our passage, but perhaps most directly it's in that, that subsection, that quotation of Micah within our Matthew passage that we read that it's most clear. From Bethlehem shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Uh, Matthew sort of adds that last part. It's not in that direct line of quotation. He's either pulling it from Ezekiel 34 or from a little further in Micah. Um, but he's making a point. He's, he's, he's making sure to include that extra point this ruler's coming from Judah, he'll be born in Bethlehem, and he will be a shepherd to Israel. Unlike others, unlike the kings Samuel had promised the people back in the day when they had first demanded a king so long ago, who would tax and conscript and terrorize them, unlike Saul, who was ultimately rejected by God, unlike even ultimately David, who at the end of his life, having sinned before God and being presented with the choice of either suffering himself or having his people suffer, chose his people to suffer, and then watching the destruction that his decision wrought, exclaims, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. David saw at the end of it, ultimately, he was not the good shepherd. And this king, this coming king, this prophesied Messiah, would certainly be unlike Herod and unlike his masters in Rome. Uh, a little on that, even by the ridiculously low standards of the ancient world, uh, Herod was a monster. Uh, Michael hinted at that a little bit last week, um, but it was bad. He didn't like his brother-in-law, his sister's wife, so he invited them all to the beach for a family fun thing and then had some guys, you know, strangle and drown his brother-in-law in the waves. Um, he actually killed so many of his own children, worried that they would usurp him, that uh, no less than Augustus Caesar quipped, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son, uh, presumably because Herod is a Jew, wouldn't touch a pig. Um, and actually, there's a wordplay there, too. The words for pig and son sound similar in Latin. So, yeah, ancient, ancient wordplays by Roman emperors about murder. That's what Herod brings out in people. He also had one of his mother-in-laws killed, too, but I mean, being king is stressful. 
Oh, and, and I think the best is right before his death, right before his death, he gave orders. He, he was dying. He knew it, so he gave orders. Okay, round up a bunch of prominent and well-beloved citizens of my kingdom, and then when I die, execute them all so that at least people will be sad when I pass. Um, ultimately, that order was not carried out. Herod died. There's no reason to placate the psycho anymore. His sister just said, no, let them go. Ding dong, the lollipop guild dances, and, and all is well. Um, so, and that's just, that's just some of it. That's just the tip of the big bloody murder iceberg that was Herod's illustrious career. Um, and I tell you all that because some people, and this annoys me, they, they try to critique the historical accuracy of the Bible because they complain, well, only the Bible says Herod killed these, these children in Bethlehem. Um, who else says it? Prove it. And I kind of feel like Herod, if anybody died during that time period, you have to prove he didn't murder them. Um, uh, you know, and so the, the Bethlehem was a small town. The, the, the terrible, terrible thing he did there, uh, numerically, wasn't the most people he ever had killed at once and might not have even been the most people he had killed that day. And that was the king in Jerusalem. That was the person sitting on David's throne. And the Messiah was supposed to be a different sort of king one who would shepherd his people, one who instead of killing children would insist that they not be hindered from coming to him and would bless them. See, Herod would kill in order to prevent any vulnerability to his rule, and Jesus, in contrast, set down all the trappings of his rule and accepted vulnerability, left heaven in the sight of the Father, became a man, and was born into a world that hated him and would oppose him, and does from his very first breath. And, and as we read together in prior weeks, Isaiah 9 publishes what this true king would be like. He would bring justice and establish peace. And as we read last week, he had come to save his people, but perhaps unexpectedly, from their sins. And this is another contrast, a king coming who, rather than promising to give us what we want to make us powerful or great or safe directly, instead comes and promises to make us holy to deliver us from the evil within rather than the evil without. Although as to the evil without, he would oppose it, but again, not as we might expect, not as we might prefer, uh, at its apex rather than at its final terminal manifestations. Unlike the, the rogues gallery of names we read in the genealogy together last week, Jesus would not give in to the devil, the king behind the many cardboard thrones of this earth, because again, what's our conflict? There's only one king. And Jesus would oppose him in the wilderness. In contrast to the kings of this earth, Jesus would live and breathe the word of God. He would invoke it as he resisted the devil. He would fulfill God's word. Herod needed someone else to, to tell him what was in the Bible to find out where the Messiah would be born. And, and just pause and reflect on this a little bit. Herod only cracked the spine on the scripture to find out where the Messiah would be born in order that he might murder him. I, I hope that makes you just a little queasy inside. I actually see a lot of what feels like a, a small-scale version of that um, as I read various commentaries and scholarly biblical resources. There's a lot of people out there who consider themselves and the world considers Bible scholars, and I, 
as far as I can tell, the only reason they pursue that career path is because they hate God, opposes Christ, and desperately wish to destroy the faith of those who do believe. Um, it's writ small, but it seems like the same sort of disturbing to me. Perhaps a final contrast is seen in the matter of legitimacy. If the conflict is that there's only one king, the contrast must come down to this. Only one king is true and all others must be false. Only one can be the true, rightful, legitimate king and anything and anyone else de facto can't. The star, which we've come to call the star of Bethlehem in our colloquial way of speaking, really confounds ready explanation. Uh, there's been a lot of speculation, a lot of back and forth theories, in part just because so little detail is given. Um, but here's what we read in the story, and here's what I think is relevant. Uh, the wise men are in their realm, the east, and they see the star rise, and they know or come to know that it's his star, the king's. This bright light in the heavens communicates to them somehow that the king of the Jews has been born. And there's, there's no indication that it's actually leading them at this stage. It simply rises. That's what we're told. Uh, and if it were leading them, it probably would have led them to Bethlehem. Instead, they see it, understand its import, and head to Jerusalem because presumably that's one would find, where one would find he who was born king of the Jews. It's only after meeting the, uh, the king and, and going through that, that whole thing that they then continue westward, learn where the Christ is to be born, and then they see the star, and it leads them to the final place. Which is rather unstar-like behavior. Uh, in fact, as the ESV translated, this, this burning bright, heavenly breaking forth of light goes before them, much like a pillar of fire went before Israel in the days of old when it led them out of slavery and into the land of promise. And so maybe, maybe that comparison kind of shows my hand a little bit in how I conceive this, because um, there are a lot of theories how to understand this miraculous phenomenon, some more or less naturalistic than the others. Um, but consider that the shepherds saw an angel of the Lord around whom the glory of the Lord shone brightly, and then these Gentile magicians saw a burning star, but both quickly came to understand the same thing. A Savior is born, Christ the Lord, King of the Jews, and that the world was not the same place it was a few moments ago. And on receiving this news, the Magi investigate, pack up, head west, where you'd expect to find the king of the Jews, the one God had promised. Contrast, they find Herod. Uh, and on leaving, this glorious light sent by God goes before them and brings them to the feet of Christ. And I go into all that in part just to, again, unpack this story we've received, um, but especially in our case because of what it all points towards. God has attested by genealogy, by signs and wonders in earth and in heaven, that Jesus is the king, the true king, the legitimate king, the king who stands in sharp contrast to all the kings of this earth, who even at their best, like David, merely echo him before ultimately falling short. And noteworthily, perhaps, by not walking the Magi straight into Bethlehem, A, they got to put their feet to faith and go on a thrilling savior scavenger hunt, which was probably very significant for their literal and metaphorical faith journey. Um, but more of more broad interest, perhaps, as a result of this, the king was proclaimed in Jerusalem, which in another contrast, Jerusalem, Israel, God's nation of priests, they were supposed to be presenting God to the Gentiles 
And yet, in the dark days in which the Messiah was born, a great light shining in the darkness, it was Gentiles who proclaimed the King, the Christ, to the rulers and authorities in Jerusalem. That's one personally I would not have seen coming. And so, as we read earlier, Jerusalem was troubled, in fear of Herod, probably. But I wonder if any of them saw... Did anyone wonder, uh, to borrow from a song, which is always a dangerous thing to do, uh, but I wonder, did any of them know what they had missed while they had been sleeping? That, that Bethlehem, once known perhaps best as the city of David, would come to be known best as the, the city that didn't have any room in the inn for its king. God's people had had a chance that day to live out one of those Davidic, messianic, kingly enthronement psalms they sang in the temple every year. But led by their king, they did nothing. The, the strangest sort of evangelists had stood in the palace of Jerusalem, Gentiles proclaiming to Jews perhaps the shortest version of the gospel ever, Jesus Christ is born, come and worship him. The shepherds were told the same good news of great joy for all people, and they responded intelligently, appropriately to that news. And the Magi's news was the same. It was no less good, but to the great and mighty and learned and religious in Jerusalem, they were troubled. Contrast. And so the Magi leave. They continue the search. In verse 10, when they see the star again, they find the child. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. God has led these very unlikely men to Christ. So let's look at that, that last thing, that third point. We see the conflict, we see the contrast, and we come before Christ. We are confronted by God's Christ, Jesus. There's only one king and only one legitimate king, and God has made it clear that this is he, Jesus, born in Bethlehem, king of the Jews, savior of the world. And there are some timing questions here, just in terms of breaking the story down. Traditionally, in a lot of our imagery, the, the Magi show up on the night of the birth. The shepherds are milling around, etc. Everyone's still in the manger. Um, I'm inclined to think not, just because Herod asked how long ago this had happened, and the star rising, it took some time to travel, likely. And then Herod ultimately killed everyone two years and down. And he might have been padding that number to be safe, but we were likely dealing with an event that had happened a little while ago. Uh, also, according to the, the Luke account, uh, in keeping with the law, Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, took him to the temple to be redeemed after a certain period of time, which was prescribed in the law. They sacrificed a couple of turtle doves rather than a lamb, which was allowed if you were really poor. It was the poor people exemption package. Uh, and so faithfully, they did that. And the Magi end up bringing very costly, pricey gifts. So if... If the dedication had happened post-Magi, they would have had a big pile of Magi gold, and they probably wouldn't have shortchanged God by doing the turtle doves. It's, a, it's an induction, but I feel it's a strong one. So all that to say, this is just sort of sage, stage setting. We're probably not in the manger anymore at this point. The housing situation is likely stabilized a little, but who knows. But when these Gentile foreigners come to this poor family, who, faithful and obedient to the Lord, can only afford the poor man's option for sacrifice, they fall before this child and worship him. And, interestingly, in the Bible, no one stops them. Mary, Joseph, an angel, the disapproving voice of our biblical narrator, nothing. There, there's no indication that this was a bad play. And worship is due only to God, and they worship Jesus. 
which to me just raises the question, how did they know? What did they see that the high and mighty in Jerusalem missed? How did they understand? What did they understand? What did they think they were doing and who Jesus was? And it's unclear to me. Um, Vague knowledge of the true God, the God of Israel, might have lingered in the Persian world thanks to Daniel and the other exiles of the diaspora. Um, But ultimately, we know that God called these men. And they set out west with limited information, it seems. And by faith, they followed the Lord. And God going before them, he led them to Christ the King, where they fall on their knees in worship. That sounds like a conversion story to me. Now, some see clues as to how they understood the child by the nature of their gifts. And certainly the gifts were practical. Um, They were worth money and would probably be the funding source that made the family's flight to Egypt and escape from Herod financially possible. Um, But I think some symbolism is inescapable, in part just because I don't know if Matthew would have gone into the details if he didn't think the details were significant. And so maybe you've heard some of this before, um, but... I think it's worth going over again. Uh, gold's a noble metal. It's the best. It's what adorns the highest and the holiest. If you, if you read how the tabernacle was built, how the temple was built, ultimately, as you went further and further inward, uh, it was the greatest things that were adorned with gold. It's a gift for a king. And then frankincense, fragrant and costly incense, was used ritually by priests. Its smoke was likened to the prayers of the saints going up before God. And so some say that frankincense is therefore a gift for a priest, and I don't think they're wrong. But in that case, it's a gift that's always re-gifted, because ultimately a priest burns it up before God. So maybe it's a gift for a priest, but terminally, it's a gift for God. Myrrh was a, was a perfume, a medicine, and a burial aid. It was useful. It made human life more bearable. It covered smells, reduced swells, and things of that nature. Uh, ultimately, it's a gift for a man. A man who's going to live, who's going to live life in all its fallen, painful, and occasionally smelly splendor. Um, and it's ultimately, it's a gift for someone who will one day die. And did the Magi mean absolutely all of that? I don't know. Maybe. Did God the Father in his sovereignty superintend over this specific disbursement of gifts and by the Holy Spirit did Matthew not notice and record this because it was meaningful? I think certainly. We've been focusing on Jesus as king during this Advent season and series, and I think rightfully so. It's one of Matthew's big pushing points. He makes it clear Jesus is king, the king. But my third point isn't king, it's Christ, in part just because king doesn't start with a C, and I wanted three C's, um, because that matters to preachers and literally no one else. And it would have worked to the ear, you know, king, Christ, conflict, but we all would have known it wasn't a C. But, but, but more than that, I'm not going to pretend the rest of it didn't matter, but more than that, there's a fuller picture here that's, while completely inseparable from Jesus' kingship, encompasses more than that. Yes, the Christ is the king, but not everyone who claims to be king is the Christ. The Magi do bring gifts to a king, and they also bring gifts to a very human baby and his very human family with very human needs. And they also bring gifts and prostrate themselves before a god before the God. There's only one king. He's the true king, unlike the kings of this world in every way, and he is the Christ, God and man, here with us. That's the story of Christmas. So what does it mean? 
in a sense, it means from that very moment forward, the whole story of the Bible was happening again from the beginning. Michael shared with us a little bit last week about how some people struggle with the concept of a virgin birth. And, and how if you've ever really read Genesis, that really feels like low-hanging fruit for a God who spoke the universe into being. Um, we read how God breathed life into a man, Adam, and now God breathed life into a new kind of man, a new Adam, Jesus. It was announced to this boy's parents that they would call his name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins, from the broken world and broken systems and broken hearts that they had lived with. And that work of recreation, of rebirth, of new life started with this new man. But, but, and so that's sort of the background. That's, that's Matthew 1. Here in Matthew 2, we've moved on to Exodus. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, God's people, whom in Exodus 4 he collectively calls his firstborn son, were trapped in Egypt, ruled over by a despotic, murderous, tyrannical king who sought to kill their children to protect his power. But a baby was born who would oppose that evil and the power behind it. And a baby whom God appointed, protected, and delivered from those who would slay him. And when God came to save this people, his messenger was rejected by those who he came to save and opposed by the powers that enslaved them. And then God attested to this messenger's legitimacy by signs and wonders. And that wicked king, Pharaoh, in Exodus, summons his magicians to try and oppose God, to answer and refute God. And despite their good faith efforts and back and forth, ultimately those foreign magicians who strived to stand up to God were crushed under the weight of the signs and wonders and forced to admit that the finger of God had come down to earth and there was none who could stand before him. And in that time, the evil king's power was broken. The treasures of Egypt were given as plunder to God's people, and the exodus happened. They were set free, fleeing from Egypt towards the land of hope and promise. Does any of that sound familiar? If you've read Exodus, absolutely it should. But does any of it feel similar to what we've been reading today? The, um, the tragic thing is that a new exodus was dawning, but Israel and Egypt had switched places. God's people are a small family trapped in Israel under the rule of a despotic, murderous, tyrannical king. The official and recognized leader of God's people was the murderous and evil Pharaoh all over again. And God's appointed deliverer, Jesus, was rejected by the people and opposed by the king and delivered by God, who warned the Magi not to return to Herod and Joseph to flee into Egypt. And I, I said earlier, we'd talk more about the wise men later, so, so let's do that. Here's why we three kings really bugs me. <laughs> um, we're so far away from this story, and I think we've whitewashed it a little bit, little by little over the years, because actually it's a little bit scandalous. So the Greek word, the word in the text for these men who come from the east bearing gifts is magoi, which is the plural form of magus. It's where we get the word magic from. They are magicians, wizards, sorcerers, enchanters, astrologers, soothsayers, diviners, interpreters of dreams, itinerant freaking thaumaturgists. And how do we translate it? Wise men. Okay, cop out breath. The ESV is awesome. This is just one of my personal hobby horses. But why? Who exactly are we fooling when we point to the guy in the big pointy hat who works magic and call him a wise man? Big finger quotes. 
perhaps, because then, as now in modern life, it's awkward to have magicians at birthday parties. Um, but, but sometimes they're just there and you have to deal with it. Uh, in fact, it's so awkward that throughout the history of the church, we've, we've, we, we, we couldn't even muster the courage to call them wise men, and we turned them into kings, which is no longer just cowardly and lazy, it's outright lying. Um, so I think we should lean into the awkward, in part just because that's an ongoing lesson in my life. Um, uh, but also it's because it's what scripture gives us. And, and I think if we try to bypass or smooth out what scripture gives us, we miss out on what God's actually trying to say. The Christ is born... And to the theologians and the priests, the faithful and learned, the descendants of Aaron blessed to serve in the temple, to the king in Jerusalem, they don't see the star rise. They don't follow it in faith westward. They don't go to Bethlehem. They don't come before Christ the king, and they don't fall down before him in worship. Pagan sorcerers do first. Israel and Egypt have switched places. Then as now, the magicians bow before the power of God, come into the world, but this time not under the lash of the plagues, but with God going before them as light, willingly, in faith, drawn by the grace of God offered in Jesus. The pagan magicians will kneel, and Israel will not. Egypt once again gives its treasures to God's firstborn son, though now willingly. While with falsehood, the evil and tyrant king, this king of the Jews with the soul of Pharaoh, with the soul of Babylon, entirely the creature of his master, the devil, plots the death of God's anointed. And so warned by the angel, the family flees. Exoduses, I think that's a verb. Uh, out of Israel, into Egypt. The world is officially upside down at this point. But then verse 15, God notes, God would once again call his son out of Egypt. Jesus would return upon Herod's death, which historically was actually probably not that far along later. Um, so Jesus, man recreated, Israel recreated, would leave Egypt and enter the promised land. And like Israel, he would enter the wilderness and be tempted by the devil. But unlike Israel, unlike the kings of this earth, contrast, he would resist him. He would stand against him. Unlike any worldly king, Jesus, the only true king, God's Christ, would live the life humanity in general, and Israel specifically as God's people, ought to have lived, but did not and would not. And as John 1 relates to us, the, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This was as true at his birth as it was at his death. Um, the genealogy calls, David, calls Jesus the son of David and the son of Abraham. Uh, the true son of David, the one king of Jerusalem, would ultimately die outside its gates. And as Abraham's true son, the, the true Isaac, he would be sacrificed but not spared. Matthew contrasts Jesus with Herod. To this day, through scripture, he holds up to the people of the world a choice. Christmas has happened, a king has come, a ruler out of Bethlehem, unlike anything you've ever seen or known, and he will be a shepherd, a good shepherd to his people. There's only one king, who is it going to be? Or to borrow from Joshua, choose this day whom you will serve. 
The Magi demonstrated you can choose Jesus. He could be your king. He's attested to by God. You could exchange the rulers of this world, Herod and Pharaoh, and everyone come before them and after them who are carbon copies of the same tired and inexcusable satanic impulse to make ourselves like God and put ourselves in his place. You can trade all of that for this king whom is unlike any other. And so Jesus, after living the life Israel could never manage, teaching truth with grace, demonstrating power and authority from heaven, the people of Jerusalem demanded Barabbas, the murderer, be spared instead of him. And when Pilate brought Jesus before the city and demanded they behold their king, the chief priests answered that they had no king but Caesar. And this is, I think... Uh, is, is easily derived from everything we've seen and everything we've read and everything we've been talking about today because wherever he went, wherever he goes today, Jesus, still attested to by God, risen and ascended before the eyes of many witnesses, attested to by God's Holy Spirit, Jesus the Christ threatens and dethrones the false kings of this world wherever he goes. And as Michael pointedly shared last week, in which I can't really in good conscience let this week go by without repeating at least the essence of, when we talk about dethroning false kings, not primarily talking about Herod, not primarily talking about other people, I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. There is a throne in our hearts and there is something on it. And apart from a mighty act of God, it is invariably ourselves. Now it's a stupid throne, and it ends in hell, but it's ours, and on it we're king. One of the unacceptable parts of the reign of the Messiah for the world's innumerable kings is that the messianic king will rule everywhere and forever. And while that might sound positive inside the walls of a church on Team Jesus, you have to understand that that a rule that is infinite in scope... It's everywhere, and a rule that lasts forever, de facto, necessarily and inescapably forever, ends the game of I'm king and I'm in charge for everyone else except Jesus. There's only one king, and he, the Christ, is it. So of course the world hates Jesus. He's dethroning them, shattering egos and the unjust power structures that invariably arise as a result of that since forever. Of course the world hates faithful Christian witness. It's a sword in service to a foreign king who opposes them, who will one day dethrone them. Well, as we've learned from our biblical magicians, that happens sometimes willingly, Sometimes at the end of the universe's biggest stick, but one way or another, thrones crumble and the mighty kneel before God or otherwise knelt. So Christmas happened. In Bethlehem, long ago, Jesus the Christ is king. The one true king. And yet the world and our hearts remain littered with thrones which seat unworthy things. So how shall we live? If, if I may counsel you, my brothers and sisters, from this, the word of God Make haste to the feet of Christ and worship him. Do not let the fear of this world's many, many kings stop you. Choose your king and choose wisely. Dethrone anything and everything that seeks to take the seat of which he alone is worthy. And throne nothing but Jesus in your heart. A callback from our very first sermon in this Advent series, there's no worse kingdom in the world than the one in which you are on the throne. Dethrone every sin which clings to you. 
to the old you which is dying and rejoice that a new you is being raised up by the power of Christ. Dethrone the enemy of your soul, the devil, from your heart by the power of faith in Christ. Whether for the first time in salvation or in an ongoing sanctifying act of repentance against whatever footholds the enemy has established in your thinking or actions. And by the sword of the Spirit as faithful witnesses, wanderers and unlikely evangelists in this world, by your witness, speak words of truth. Proclaim this King to this post-Christmas world and wait in faith for the King Jesus to continue toppling his thrones. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have the divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. May it be so in our church and in our hearts. Amen. I'm going to invite our musicians to come up to, to lead us in a, in a final song of response. Um, Father God, uh, everything we have is by rights yours. You've given us our lives and every breath we breathe. Every good thing we've experienced, every good gift we know is from your hand. And God, ultimately, you've given of yourself. You've given your son, Jesus. We love you. We thank you, God. May we respond to you rightly. May we embrace your king that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.